Hi, everyone. This is Brian Choi, CEO of the Food Institute. This week on the Food Institute podcast, we're talking to an ex-NFL player who's helping to lead the largest plant-based pea protein company in the U.S. Tyler Lorenzen is CEO of Purist, and we're really excited to talk about his background and how his company is innovating in the plant-based sector. I'd like to thank today's sponsor, Lazard Middle Market. Lazard Middle Market provides customized advice on mergers and acquisitions, debt and equity recapitalizations, and financial restructurings to mid-sized companies across a broad range of industries. Their food-dedicated bankers have played key advisory roles in some of the most important, complex, and industry-defining transactions. To learn more, please take a look at the link in the description of this episode. With that out of the way, I'd like to introduce Tyler to the Food Institute podcast. How are you doing today? Brian, thanks for having me. I'm doing wonderful. Glad to be here. Eager to have our conversation and congratulations to all your success. Thanks. I really appreciate that. All right. So let's get today's conversation started. Tyler, why don't you share a little bit more about yourself and Purist, its history, vision, and future? For sure. So Purist is a, is a family business and my dad actually dreamed it up back in 1985, believe it or not, way before the plant-based revolution was a concept or in the news or there was podcasts or even a newsletter about it, he was talking about well, the system that we produce food needs to change. So as a kid, I've been involved in the company since I can remember because uh, I was born when, when the business started. My sister was a two-year-old and, and obviously I was just born and he started this company. He was a seed breeder, uh, not by education, but by trade. So he learned how to do it uh, on an internship, and he thought, he said, well, if I could grow plants that were planned to be ate by humans instead of animals, well, what would we do different? Well, we'd make sure those plants yielded really well for the farmers, so they'd still want to grow it. We'd want those plants to not have chemicals and, and grown in a way that people would be glad to consume it. We would make sure those plants were nutritionally dense. We'd make sure those plants were high, are high in protein and most of all, tastes great. So he built this idea that if you start with the seed, could you build a plant-based food company that could feed people plants instead of feed people animals in terms of their protein choices? And that was what he set out to do. Uh, he called it the World Food System. We rebranded to Purus uh, when I got involved uh, back in 2011 in that range. And really the, the vision was building an integrated model from seed all the way to food around around plant-based protein. So today we are the largest manufacturer of pea protein in North America. Uh, we just uh, commissioned and are running our new plant 24-7 in Dawson, Minnesota, which represents about 50% of the North America pea uh, protein production. Uh, we are the largest seed uh, pea seed company in the United States as well, where we sell seed to farmers all across the United States, where they grow our peas on our behalf. We buy what they grow back, secure that market, and then turn it into great tasting ingredients. And our customers are are all of the ones that you would imagine that you can buy in, in your grocery stores or even in the, the, your restaurants and food service industries. So lo lots have changed, uh, certainly. I think the, the beginning of our, our journey, we were going against the wind and now we're running with it. And it's not always easy. Uh, growth is hard. And, and I think people look at what's going on in the plant-based industry and, and try to judge it at a moment in time, but I can say the net direction and the movement is a positive one, and we're we're happy to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, well, we're definitely going to be talking about the future growth potential of the plant based industry as a whole. Um, you know, but 
wanted to dig in a little bit about your background. You know, as I was doing a little bit of research on you, Tyler, I found it very interesting that you did not come from a traditional business or food industry background. You actually started your career in the NFL, as you mentioned. Can you share a little bit about why you made the change and, you know, what just the thought process and the fundamentals behind that move? So a family business, you're a business person. You just don't know it. It's just life. <laughs> so I grew up being an entrepreneur from the fact that my dad and mom were. They started the business and had you know a few employees most of our life. And when I was going through my childhood, what I was always reminded about my dad is he was a college football player at Iowa State. And he told me that sports are finite. And that, that no matter how great you are, they come to an end. Look at Tom Brady. Look at Drew Brees. Right. You can name all the greatest. And, and sports are finite. They come to an end. And when they do, it's done and you'll never get to do it again. So if it's something that you care about, you want to be great, give it your all while you can. So I grew up in a town of 900 people. And from third grade till I was in the NFL, that was my goal. And I wanted to be a pro football player. And I said, that that's I told that to everyone and sure it sounded crazy and my journey was 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 crazy and, and volatile uh, without a doubt started off at Iowa State went to a junior college end up graduating from University of Connecticut where I played quarterback and then lo and behold I uh, was undrafted and turned into a tight end of, uh, in the pros with uh, Jacksonville Jaguars got cut and then was signed by the New Orleans Saints and that year uh, we put it all together and we won a Super Bowl. And I was yeah. on the practice squad. I was a fringe player, you know, not a superstar at all. I was just a guy. And right. but but I was around these superstars. I was around a, a Super Bowl team like Drew Brees and right. and Sean Payton, Reggie Bush, leaders and 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 players that transcended the whole league. And that becomes so much of a learning experience that you don't recognize when you're in it until you're done. And I got cut in 2011, so my third year. And it was that moment where I realized my dad was right. <laughs> right. It, it's over and this is finite. And I made up a saying, um, to my mantra to get me through it. Cause football was my identity, you know, make moves or get moved. And my plan was to move to New York city, uh, get a job in investment banking and wall street. <laughs> like that whole idea. I fell in love with that at, at UConn and the West East coast vibe, excuse me. And, Lo and behold, my dad needed some help and uh, some help turned into us buying a plant uh, in Wisconsin, a 1950 dairy plant that we bought for little money, little to no money that was uh, done through borrowed a convertible note. I'll never forget it. And <laughs> my dad said, he's like, hey, will you, are you in? I was like, look, if we go big, if we're going to do this, we got to go big. And that's that's uh, my mantra, make moves or get moved. And we started our growth track. We We were less than 30 employees at the time. Uh, we've grown excessively over the past 10 years. And now we're at over 370 employees, seven manufacturing plants, uh, more than 10 X our business. Wow. And, you know, we're, we're, we're on the course to do, doing that again. And really uh, all I can say about that in the end is I don't have an MBA. I don't have any experience. Sometimes ignorance is bliss and it, it lets you have the courage to try and that's what Purist is all about. People willing to try to make it happen and, and really bring the effort to, you know, prove what's possible when great people come together to go after a common goal. And, and that's what we've done. 
Awesome. Well, congrats on the tremendous success. And I, I was curious when you first joined the company, uh, there's a story I read about how you stumbled upon pea protein, because I think in the past it was more soy-based. And I believe you and your R&D manager were just kicking around the idea, hey, why don't we just create a protein from, from pea? And then you just started experimenting. I love that story. Can you share that with our audience? Because I think it really highlights. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so my dad is a, my dad's Jerry. He's, he's still our plant breeder and he's the best in the world, in my opinion. He's a soy guy and at heart, <laughs> like he's a soy guy, but he also started breeding peas back in 1999. And his whole idea was, can I grow peas further South in the United States? So that, that latitude around the world. And if you could, you can grow them at the off season versus your typical summer season uh, right. growing crop growing time. And if you could do that, you could grow a cover crop that was a cash crop. So you could get paid to have biodiversity. That was his idea. So he started breeding these peas back in 1999. And I was going to Iowa State that summer and I was in charge of our corn breeding program when I was a kid and from age 12 till, till college. And we're walking through the field and he's had the program for five years or so. And this is Southern Iowa. So there's multiple rows of peas and they're looking rough. <laughs> I mean, peas, peas are not supposed to grow in the summer in Iowa, but he's pressure testing the genetics. And I'm like, dad, when are, when are you going to give up this, this pea breeding? <laughs> and he, he goes off about how, how much it's going to matter to organic farmers. They can enhance their profitability per acre. This gives people the chance to look at their land and, and use it all year round. It's important. And right. so I'm like, okay. And he's, he's a visionary. It's hard to know back then, but now you're like, wow. And so fast forward to 2012 and we buy this facility that makes soy protein. So what are we trying to do? Make soy protein. Well, that's a pretty mature market and people <laughs> are pretty good at it. And every time we would find the hardest and toughest uh, products to make, Soleil, ADM, whoever would just undercut us and, and capture the market again. So we, we knew we needed to find product market fit and it wasn't through our non-GMO and organic soybeans. It just wasn't mm -hmm. going to happen. So as we started understanding what our customers wanted, they were looking for non-GMO. Yep. They were looking for organic. Yep. The other thing they were looking for is hexane free. They wanted no solvents in, mm -hmm. in their protein isolates, which soy requires solvents to remove the oil hexane is used. So they were saying all of these things. And uh, we, we got the tip that pea protein could be a unique solution. And we tried some of the products and we we're like, we can do better than this. And our head of R&D, he's still our head of R&D today, uh, Kushal Chandak, and he's created all of our products. He's an absolute wizard. Everyone calls him Kush in the industry. And, and uh, he, we invented pea protein at our large-scale manufacturing plant, commercialized it in 2014. Uh, it's known as Purest Pea. Uh, that's when we rebranded the company uh, over the next couple of years. And we went from world food processing to what now known as Purist. And we have a whole system of making pea protein. So we leverage those peas that my dad bred for years. We grow in 20, 20 plus states across the United States. We have a global breeding program now around peas, yield that's equivalent or better than soy, protein content that continues to go up bland and color, or excuse me, white in color, bland in taste, all of the things that add up to what our, our pea protein equals in the market. And we're known for having the best taste and most diverse book of pea proteins out there. And it's really coming from a place of solving what we set out to do is how do we make great food? 
Well, right. to make great food, you better have great ingredients. To have great ingredients, you better have great seeds and build that system end to end. And it's crazy because if we knew how hard it was going to be, I wonder if I would have signed up. But it, <laughs> I'm so glad I did. It, it's been it's been a blast. Well, that's phenomenal. So, you, so in a period of two years, so from 2012 to 2014, that's you, you basically redirected or pivoted the company to focus on P. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it was one of those things, you know, the innovators dilemma people talk about in large scale companies. And when you're trying to gain traction early on, you know, sales solves everything. The people that are willing right. to buy your product, that drives your decision. And we were finally getting sales in soy. I mean, we built a real book of business. You know, we had right. soy milk, soy protein, organic non-GMO, all of these things. And we had customers and we had a bias, though, that we believed that our pea protein would be the mainstay for our customers. And it was a hard conversation, but those customers made the switch with us. And, and today they, they are buy, pea protein buyers at scale because wow. all the attributes they, attributes they were looking for in soy, we gave them that in pea and more. Uh, soy protein, I like to say, is there's probably nothing wrong with it, but hey, it's not Google friendly. It is GMO. That's right. A lot of people believe it's only GMO, even though there is non-GMO varieties. It does have uh, hexane used in an extraction technology. That is true. Uh, all of the health effects, you know, I don't know how true that is, but Google's a search engine, not a truth engine. Right. But pea protein has all of that and none of the baggage. The only baggage pea protein has is it doesn't taste good. So we right. solve that problem. And taste is unique by the application. It's not just taste in general, it's how does this right. taste when you make a protein shake? How does this taste when you make a plant-based burger? How does this taste when you make a chicken? And every step, every other meal occasion in between, that's what Purus is known for. And we were able to do it fast because we did it at commercial scale right. out, of, out of the gate. And we had a, we had a large R&D facility, I like to call it, because it was completely flexible. And we were given enough freedom to go learn fast and we learned right. through failing a whole bunch and 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 now we're taking that those lessons and uh, expanding our, our footprint meaningfully wow so just to put things in context when you look at the pea protein market versus soybeans and other other uh, protein-based uh, plant-based proteins what what percentage does pea represent today um, and what's what's been the growth rate compared to some of these other alternative protein? Yeah, the, the soy, wheat, they're the dominant protein players in plant. Uh, you know, you're talking uh, 500,000 metric tons or and north of that. Uh, some of the, the key production countries around the world are United States, Brazil, China, to, to name a few. Uh, uh, of course, uh, Europe as well. Pea is much smaller. So it, it's about a, uh, maybe a third or a little less of, uh, uh, yeah, it's like a fourth of that. And there's been over a billion dollars of investment into pea protein manufacturing in the U.S. in the past two years. Purist right. represented a large sum of that, but not not all, of course. And right. we did it through partnering with Cargill, one of the largest animal protein and corn wet millers out there, which they, they've backed us and they're our JV partner. When you think about peas, though, and soy, peas, there's, there's 11 million acres of peas grown in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and when you look at protein per acre... It's very low, low cost. And in certain areas of the world, it's used as the replacement for soy because it's a shorter season crop. Their, their temperatures are such that they have to get in, get out. 
So uh, before winter comes and soy, there's there's over 80 million acres of soybeans just in the United States. Right. So th this delta is meaningful. And as we look at pea protein globally, there was no U.S. manufacturer when we started. We were the very first and only for many years. And most of the pea protein was coming in from China. Today, they, they ship, uh, you know, 80,000 plus metric tons of pea protein into the U.S. market a year. And it's really a byproduct for their starch production. I and see. of that 80 or so metric tons, 80,000 or so metric tons, they have, you know, a large percent around 27 percent plus is organic. So the way we position against that is how do we make something that tastes better? And the value exchange is such that buyers are looking to buy something local, something that's traceable back to the farmers that they're buying it from, but also something that consumers don't know that they're eating pea protein. It's never, right. never comes up. This tastes like pea because that was a huge problem when we first started. Big right. CPG companies laughing at us with the idea of pea protein. And <laughs> so I think that the, the the global dynamics are really interesting. There's roughly 5% of the peas grown around the world are used to make plant-based proteins. So that's not a, a limiting factor, but the opportunity is really going to come. Who's going to invest the capital to keep right. building out the infrastructure that's needed. Uh, GFI just came out with a report last week that said there's going to be over $28 billion worth of extrusion capacity, which is a key step to wow. making plant-based meat to to hit the demand for 2030 and so the next step in that that equation is who's going to make all the protein and right. the protein facilities are are meaningfully more capex intensive than the extrusion facilities because of the the amount of peas you take in to create the wow. products and right. our facility we just built in uh, this past year which is uh started up in december of 2021 you know we spent well over a hundred million dollars on it. It's 200,000 square feet. It was a, a dairy plant, originally a soy protein plant that we right. completely gutted retrofit and wow. gave it a new life, but there's not a bunch of those out there. So a lot of mm -hmm. these will be green fields, which will cost, you know, a multi orders of magnitude more that, right. than, than what we spent. So it's a really interesting time. And what I'm excited about is there's a number of players that are investing, not just purists, a number of players that are investing in the future because it's going to take a tribe to make this all happen. Yeah, well, that's exciting. You know, so you mentioned a, a little bit about the 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 growth potential. Let's talk about the actual products themselves. So, you know, I met you at the the plant based food association event at the Javits Center. I, I was trying the the Beyond Meat burgers, so I know that pea protein is used for for the burgers. Can you give us a breakdown as you know, what percentage goes to burgers versus other other products just to give a lay of the land? Yeah, the, the interesting thing is so, so oftentimes we get we get uh, positioned as if we only make pea protein for plant-based meat. And for us, that has been a, a, a lagger in terms of market growth over the years. Uh, what, oh, we've, what we were able to do is how do you build the right tasting product for lifestyle nutrition and then sports mm. nutrition and then breakfast and cereals and yogurts and, and beverages like, you know, almond milk has no protein in it. So you add wow. some pea protein, then you can get up to equivalency of that, that, that the protein that's contained in dairy milk. And those kind of stories from morning to night, every meal occasion, we're looking at how do we incorporate plant-based proteins? So if a, a consumer chooses to eat 
a plant-based diet or a flexitarian diet for that matter, they can get their protein when they want. Now, a lot of the arguments are that there's too much protein in the American diet, which is true, but we want to give the power to the people in terms of how they want to consume their protein and make sure that it comes from plants without any compromise. So when you look at our customer mix, you have certainly the plant-based meat, non-dairy from yogurts to cheeses to milks to the sports nutrition, huge market for us and continues to grow. And what we're really excited about is, is seeing the, the RTD market continue to spur up as plant-based hasn't really took hold and mm -hmm. captured the same market growth as that of dairy proteins like milk protein concentrate and uh, WPI, whey protein isolate. So do you think that the ready to drink market, that's the the potentially the biggest growth area over the, you know, over the next couple of years? Or where, where would you place your bets on in terms of growth? Yeah, we've we've been placing our bets in a number of areas. I think you're solving for different things depending on what customers you're serving. And with the RTD, for example, one of the biggest issues was as you add more plant-based protein, most specifically pea or soy, into an RTD beverage, it doesn't taste good. And consumers have been trained on the taste of what milk protein concentrate and whey protein isolates taste like in a 20 gram serving sports beverage, you know, on the right. go type of shake. And the quality requirements and the expectation from the consumer, there had to be new technology that was built into the pea protein. So we, we commercialized what we call our PRS 2.0, which is a new, it took, it was a two year project that we looked at the basics of what our proteins can do and what could they do in an RTD application at serving sizes that consumers want. So anywhere from 30 grams a serving down to four. Can mm -hmm. we make a product that is so good that consumers wouldn't question drinking this uh, all the time and, and more more similar to what they're used to? And that, that's been a huge home run. So in some cases, yeah, we're betting on niche categories like that, where mm -hmm. we think taste is king and you need to create a new product to make that happen. In other cases, we understand that that supply and functionality and and juiciness is what matters. Right. That's a whole different equation to solve. And right. so we have to solve that in a different way. And so we're looking at ways to create proteins that also uh, create value out of the co-products from our starches, our fibers, everything. So I, th I think the market in general, we're going to serve both volume players and niche players, both organic, non-GMO, kind of everywhere in between. And the our, our whole goal is making sure we give the tools to the the, the makers, as we call them, uh, right. the CPG brands, so they can keep scaling and, and give consumers something that uh, they won't be sad about to eat. And there's no compromise. I think that's my favorite word to use is there's just no compromise when you choose plants over animals. So I think right. the net effect on, from the environment, certainly for the animals, uh, but ultimately, I think for people's pocketbooks at scale, uh, will be something that that consumers are happy with. Right. Let's talk about the the, the price disparity or the perceived price uh, disparity between animal and, and plant. So with, with pea protein, um, is it is it price comparable like to other types of uh, a protein or can you can, can you give us an understanding of where where some of the differences might be today and what's what's the expectation as you guys continue to scale? Yeah, there's there's certainly ebbs and flows of the pricing based on you know typical market dynamics, supply, demand, all of that, but also just the commodity market. So as agriculture 
is the core cost driver of everything. Like what's happening in that? This past year has been a tremendous drought where most peas are grown. So there's about a 61% reduction in in yields in the United States. There's about a 42% reduction in the global supply. Now, what does that mean? Well, more supply is going into food markets versus feed or or pet food or things of that nature, but it drives a cost up. So from right at this moment, costs are very difficult uh, for the market to handle, including purists. And I think that is a good indication of every other market too. So when when soy or corn or those base commodity products uh, increase in cost, well, that trickles through the animal market, animal protein market as well, because most of that is grown for feed. You know, about a third Mm -hmm. of corn is grown for ethanol in the United States. About a third is grown for human food and about a third is grown for animal feed. And, and I think soy is the ratios are slightly different, but call it similar. And so the input costs go up where pea doesn't really have the same dynamics. And certainly plant-based meat doesn't have the same dynamics as animal protein is massively subsidized. Mm -hmm. So as as the market is extremely volatile, that how do they keep the farmers whole? So Mm -hmm. you can see markets go crazy in some of the, from a supply demand scenario, if there's just lack of milk production, whey Mm -hmm. protein, milk protein, some of these cheese byproducts can really uh, exceed in pricing what's typical. You know, pea protein compared to that right mm-hmm. now is cheap. But compared to pea protein in the past, well, our prices are double at the farm. So the costs are, are significantly higher now, too. So it feels expensive, uh, historically speaking. With all of that said, I think there's those are basic macro and microeconomics that are at play. The thing that's most exciting to me is, well, what do you do about it? Well, right. how do we scale to a larger size of production where we can dilute fixed costs and absorb right. absorb our overhead on, off of more units? How do we take the whole pea and create value out of everything? So it's not just the pea protein company. We're a pea company and we're selling starches, fibers, proteins, other solutions that have value to the customers that are buying it. That's mm-hmm. how we're going after it. And I, I would say the market is in general. And to me, the long tail, you know, where animal meat is a couple trillion dollars globally. Yeah. We're so small in the grand <laughs> scheme of things that as we get to close to that size, I really think that the economics will be uh, in our favor. Got it. Oh, very interesting. Um, I did want to ask you about some kind of sales trends that we've been tracking at I- IRI. You know, when we, li- we take a look at animal um, uh, plant-based uh, protein and, and dairy, it seems as though the growth rates have somewhat kind of declined a little bit. Obviously, compared to two years ago, the growth rates are still extremely, like we're talking double digits. Um, and even taking a look at Beyond Meat's kind of quarterly numbers, we're see- starting to see kind of growths kind of slow. And so I wanted to ask you, what what's what do you attribute to that? And, you know, what's your near-term expectation for 2022, maybe even the following year? Yeah, it's it's interesting because the, the public companies like Beyond and others, you know, everyone is digging through their whole P&L, which what they do is just plant-based. So it, it's easy right. to draw uh, conclusions. You know, you look at the data and it, you can get to the point where, well, the is the market slowing down? Well, relative to year-on-year growth, sure. Uh, but it's it was such a huge pop. Uh, right. And I think what you see is people driving trial, which trial will then hopefully draw, draw new habits. What I think the the plant-based industry doesn't get enough credit for, and 
and especially Beyond Meat, is how they pivoted from out of home to mm-hmm. in home on a on a dime during right. the pandemic. Right. That is hard. And right. if anyone has tried to do that before, uh, scaling up your business is hard, but changing the channels that you sell in, you know, the pack sizes, everything's different, you know, everything. Right. And so they did a remarkable job making that happen. I think a lot of other plant-based customers that have launched during the pandemic have also done that. So instead of selling uh, the food service launches, they're, they're going through a grocery channel. And also there's been an expansion where a club as well as Walmart, Target, all of these people are jumping on the bandwagon as well. So I think there's there's a lot to be excited about. And you certainly hear it from retailers where uh, the long tail of this, they're, they're believers in, which which we are too. Again, sh- in the short term, yeah, maybe a blip, directionally accurate. And we're right. just scratching the surface of what's possible with taste and functionality and even nutrition and, and looking at segmentation on each channel. You know, what's mm-hmm. happening in natural channel versus club uh, versus food drug mass, it's, it'll shape just like other markets that are mature have. And it'll be really mm-hmm. interesting to see how the brands pick the channels they want to win in and how they differentiate and position their products there, which I think will, will be a benefit and accretive to the market. And, and so we certainly made a huge bet on our, on our uh, facility and we haven't seen any lack of demand from our customer base. And so we're, we're, we're eager on the pro forma for sure. Awesome. Well, I'd love to come see the facility, um, you know, at some point and, uh, um, but yeah, I'm super excited. You know, my view is that you know this—it's not just the 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 newness and the innovation of, of protein, but it's also like the whole structural ESG and sustainable movement. Like this is this is not going to go away, right? And and I think you're in agreement with that. And so this is a long-term play. I do see that that this industry will outpace um, you know the the traditional forms of, of protein. And I'm just super excited, super excited to see what's uh, what's going to be coming down the pike. And so with that. What are you most excited about for, you know, for Puris, uh, for the plant-based industry, you know, today looking out maybe three to five years? So my sister has, uh, she runs a business with me and she's my best, my best bud. She has two kids, her and her husband, Jordan, uh, have two kids, uh, Cameron and Avery, and they're, they're seven and five or six and seven. Cameron's turn, turns seven here in, in the spring. They, so my sister's also a plant-based eater. And she was talking, uh, well, her kids, they eat flexitarian. And, and she's like, I, uh, you know, mom doesn't eat meat. And her son, Cameron, says, well, mom, you eat meat. You eat beyond meat. You eat plant meat. <laughs> I watched you eat plant chicken yesterday. So what I'm most excited about is this disassociation that chicken, milk, protein, you name it, a hamburger, burger, right. whatever, comes from an animal. And the younger people in this world don't have the same vantage point as even I had growing up in Iowa. And I'm sure people in older generations than I have were even stronger. That perception is changing and it's evolving. And the buying power of the people that can see the world differently from a viewpoint of, do we really have to use animals to feed humans? Is that really required? Because in the end, isn't it the taste and the experience and the nutrition that we're trying Absolutely. to get? And yeah. so if the answer is yes, what I'm excited about is we are just getting started at creating products that taste so good that I bet mm-hmm. they'll be better than the ones that come from the animals. 
and they'll certainly be more affordable. And I also think they'll be more nutritious because they'll have fiber and all of these other things. So that's what I'm excited about. The key is how fast we can make that happen. Yeah. Well, that's that's why we have entrepreneurs like like you and uh, the many others that are investing their their resources and and their their financial resources into investing in this type of technology. I'm super excited, Tyler. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you, and I'm super excited to just to see how Purist grows over the next few to five years. And so, you know, thank you for coming on the Food Institute podcast and sharing your story. Absolutely, and good luck. I, I'm eager to listen in. Great. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank Lazard Middle Market for sponsoring this week's episode. Just a reminder to follow, like, and subscribe to the Food Institute podcast. And if you'd like to sign up for our new plant-based insider newsletter, just look for the link in the description below. We'll catch you next time. This is Brian Choi signing off. 